Hello everyone, I welcome you to the First Baptist Church of Westfield Sunday Service. If you would, please open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. Um, and while you're turning there, just as a quick recap of what's going on historically, um, Ahaz is king of Judah at the time. And right now, Israel and Syria are both enemies who are trying to take over Judah and end Ahaz's reign and the Davidic dynasty. Um, and so Ahaz has this worry about what's going to happen to the future and how can he stand against his two opponents. Um, and so there's a temptation there to go ahead and call out to Assyria, who is the major power at the time, to protect him. Um, meanwhile, God is saying through Isaiah to Ahaz, no, don't do that. Have faith. Trust in me. Trust in God. So now we're going to find out what happens next. So starting with verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. So as the chapter continues, we notice how verse 10 begins with again. This may indicate one of two things. The first is that this occurs at another time and place from the first location found in the previous verses. Um, and the second is that this is merely the second part of a single conversation between Isaiah and Ahaz at that time. Either view works, so it seems likely that this is all part of one conversation since there's no evidence that uh, time or place has changed. It is then interesting to notice how the text describes who speaks. We notice it is not Isaiah or the prophet who speaks to Ahaz. Instead, it is God who is seen to be speaking to Ahaz. Yet this is done through his prophet Isaiah. As such, the prophetic message is a reminder that it comes from an outside source. It is not on Isaiah's personal authority which he speaks and makes his proclamations, but on the fact that the message comes from God. Yet it is also seen to come in the conversation. As such, God is using Isaiah without overwhelming his free will. Oswald, who's a commentator, says it very well when he says, It is clear-eyed recognition that the transcendent can relate to the finite in such a way that neither the transcendent is constrained um, to the finite nor the finite violated. Neither God nor Isaiah has become other than himself in the process. Yet there has been such a community of thought and desire between the two personalities that Isaiah's words are God's. At this, Ahaz is encouraged to ask a sign of the Lord your God. The Lord here is the covenantal name for God, which is Yahweh. As such, it is a personal request from God that Ahaz should ask for a sign. Such a sign is often given by God throughout the scriptures in order to give credence to faith. Oftentimes, we believe that God expects of us some kind of a blind faith. The truth is, God has always given evidence of himself to which our faith is merely a response to the evidence given. This is something to rejoice in since it reminds us God is the God of all things. And in being the God of all things, the evidence of his existence, his faithfulness, his love, his mighty attributes, and even his glory are all around us all the time. Since this is the case, there is nothing Ahaz could ask that would not be accepted. Anything from the depths of Sheol to the height of heaven. God would give any sign requested for Ahaz to understand and to believe. Now we come to verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. 
Despite the generous offer by God through Isaiah, Ahaz rejects the proposal. We notice how instead of asking for a sign, he actually appears pious by not asking for one. Now, some will wonder about this. Isn't this the correct response? Doesn't Ahaz show his faithfulness to God by not asking for a sign? Indeed, doesn't he quote the law in declining the sign? For we are told in Deuteronomy 6.16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. The problem is, Ahaz is taking this out of context. The testing which is being described in Deuteronomy is dealing with disbelief in God actually being with his people. It was at Massa that they doubted God was actually with them and were angry at Moses for bringing them into the desert. Such testing of God, especially after all that he had brought them through, was unacceptable. In the present case, however, it is not about doubting God's existence, but about faith. God is willing to give evidence for our faith in order to affirm it. A good example of this is Gideon. Gideon believed in God. He had no doubt God existed, but was also in need of his faith being further grounded in regards to what he was being asked to do. God was willing to be tested for the sake of the faith already attained. As it is, Ahaz is showing us the difference between being pious and faithful. While piety can be good um, when it is not misplaced, without faith, it really means nothing. So now we come to verses 13 and 14. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now the text Um, turns to the response by God over Ahaz. We notice it is not only Ahaz to whom God speaks, but the whole house of David. This may be a reflection of the dynasty. Despite all God has done and despite God encouraging them to trust him in faith, their faith had been lukewarm at best. That the text says weary men may imply the prophets or may imply all the faithful or simply all the people. God's expectation for the dynasty was faithfulness to him. The less faithful they were, the more the people felt the repercussions. Oftentimes it led to unrighteousness and faithlessness with all the people, for the people follow the leadership. We finally notice how it is no longer your God, but my God. It is a reminder that the continued rejection by Ahaz and the dynasty of God leads to a broken relationship. Isaiah is in the right relationship with God because of his faith. Meanwhile, the king continued to fail. It's with this the declaration is made that God will give a sign to Ahaz despite his faithlessness. The sign that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. There is debate over the term virgin, as some believe the word should be translated as a young woman rather than virgin. And in all truth, the text in Hebrew uses a word more akin to maiden than the word for virgin. But two things to notice. The first is maiden still reflects an unmarried woman who has not been with a man. The second is that while in the Hebrew the text does not use the word for virgin, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, does use the specific term for for virgin here. Now, if that were where the debate ended, it would be pretty easy, to be honest. But few things are ever so easy. There are a number of things about the prophecy which makes it interesting, whether it be the fact that God tells Ahaz to ask for a remarkable sign, the way in which the prophecy is stated as somewhat 
enigmatic. Um, the name of the child, the way the woman is described, it is all somewhat strange. Not only this, but this is one of the most debated verses in all of the scriptures, more or less because we find it in Matthew 1 concerning Christ. The question really focuses on whether this is a message specifically for a historical event in Isaiah's time, or is it about Jesus only? There are generally two interpretations. The first is that this is only meant to be about Jesus. That it is quoted in the New Testament, Jesus' birth is uncanny to say the least, and that Christ is literally God with us, which is the name of Emmanuel, are all significant points to this. Likewise, in context, there does seem to be issues as the child of the sign is not mentioned specifically in the text. That is, the child is not specified as this Emmanuel. Likewise, Oftentimes, the Emmanuel later found in Isaiah is coupled with far future events when even Judah is dispersed. Much of this is made evident by Matyar and other commentators as well. As such, the argument is that it was always very particular focusing on Christ. The problem, however, is that it fits well within the context, especially since we learn before the child has grown, both Israel and Syria will be destroyed, as we'll see in a few verses. If the child is not born prior to the child's coming, Um, of age, what does this mean for Isaiah and his prophecies? Thus, some hold to a double fulfillment, which is that it was fulfilled by a child born during the time of Isaiah, but also fulfilled at the coming of Christ. This view allows for the historical context to be realized. A son was born at that time, which signified the coming end of Syria and Israel. Thus, God is with his people by protecting them from the immediate danger, whereas Christ is the fulfillment of the text in the grand narrative as God in the flesh with his people. Indeed, in Isaiah, this seems to be the case as the Emmanuel is also designated as coming at a later time than the events taking place. Thus, Oswald, Uh, The commentator quoted earlier says also, I believe that the sign as originally given had a single meaning but a double significance. Its meaning is that God is with us and we need not fear what other human beings may do to us. The first significance is for Ahaz's own day. He need not go to Assyria because God is with Judah. And then the second significance would be Jesus himself. Now, I know Mike is sitting here in my mind. He's right there in the first pew and he's raising his hand and he's saying, okay, pastor, but what do you think? Um, And in all honesty, I think both views are legitimate, though if pressed, I would say I would lean toward the double fulfillment view. When we consider how often Christ is a typology of things in the Old Testament or vice versa, one can easily see how Old Testament prophecies could happen in their historical context and then are more fully realized in Christ. This is true not only for the prophecies, but also of the people as well as the nation itself. We often see pictures of Christ in the Old Testament narratives before he came, almost as though he was hiding in plain sight. Thus, for this passage to have, a his, have, uh, have had a historical element in Ahaz's day, and yet fulfilled in the person of Christ, should not be so surprising. Finally, I do think that there has to be a bit of finagling with the text in order to apply it only to Christ. Does this mean that Christ was never in view? I don't think so. 
It would not surprise me if Christ is the truest form of the fulfillment for the prophecy, with others being a copy of him, actually. When we also consider how those in the New Testament understood Old Testament references and events happening for us, as we find in Romans 4 and Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians 11, and also in Jesus himself on the road to Emmaus, when he is um, telling his disciples all that happened and how he fits into the Old Testament, then it is reasonable to conclude that a double fulfillment view um, is possible without negating anything. So that's why I generally tend to think that the, the double fulfillment view makes sense here. Now that then leads us to wonder, though, what it meant for Ahaz's time. Who was the child? The answer is not as easy. Some believe it was Hezekiah, though this seems unlikely since he would have been born some years prior to this happening. Others believe it might have been some other child of the royal house not yet born. Still others, no specific child, just children in general during that time born to faithful women who would proclaim God is with them at the birth of their children. Finally, there are others who believe this is a fulfillment um, found with uh, Mahar Shalah Hajbaz, who, was, who will be introduced in the next chapter, in chapter 8, and is Isaiah's son. In which case, Isaiah was a widower when he remarried, and then this child was the sign um, for King Ahaz. Ultimately, there is no consensus on this, and though all scholars do have their opinions, I'm not sure I, I necessarily hold a particular view personally. So now we come to verses 15 through 17. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So we continue with the prophecy that the boy will eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. This could mean a number of things. If the above part of the prophecy is singular focused, it would represent Jesus, let's say, living in poverty. For curds and honey were not necessarily uh, kings that food, or, or foods that kings ate. Conversely, it could also mean that it represents a child in safety eating curds and honey, indicating that the threat is gone. As such, the land whose two kings dwelled will be deserted by the time the boy comes to age of accountability is what we'd call it. But like other times in Isaiah's ministry, he manages to pull the rug right out when they feel secure. As it is, no judgment comes upon the people without God being actively involved. In this case, it is the Lord God who brings the devastation. But whereas Ahaz thought that he and his people would be secure, the end result would be destruction against them. By what means? The king of Assyria. The very nation Ahaz is placing his hope in will be the ones which bring his own people sorrow. Thus Ahaz has placed his faith not in God, but in men. And in doing so, it will only lead to destruction. Alright, the main point of these verses are to show the result of Isaiah's message to Ahaz. Despite being willing to give a sign to encourage faith, Ahaz chooses not to trust in God. In failing this, the result will lead to a sign regardless. The northern nations will be dispersed and destroyed, but the cost will be great even for Judah as the same nations, um, nation which Ahaz believes will bring their salvation will bring them devastation. And all of this will happen by the time a child has reached a particular age. Alrighty. 
In today's text, we see a glimpse of Ahaz's character. Despite being encouraged by God to ask for a sign that God is with Judah and the dynasty, Ahaz chooses not to test God. In this, we find an individual who seems to be quite pious in his faith. He seems to be an individual who does not want to question God. But in this piety, we find a problem. Indeed, it is not only a problem for Ahaz, but it seems to be a problem for the majority of the people during Isaiah's time. Despite their piety, there seems to be no true faith in God. Despite God having done so much for them, despite all the promises even, Ahaz represents the people at that time, willing to sacrifice, willing to pray, but unwilling to follow God by faith. In this, we find an old enemy for the human race, ourselves. Instead of turning toward God in faith and trust in him, very often we find ourselves trusting in ourselves or in humanity above God. Whether it is our own experiences or our own thoughts or the experiences and thoughts of others. We believe we will be able to overcome anything in this life. And if not us, then the strong among us who will be able to pull us along with them. Yet God is reminding us over and over and over again that such salvation will not come from any person. Instead, salvation comes by his hand alone. He has even brought forth a sign of this in the coming of Jesus Christ, the Emmanuel, who is God with his people. He has also shown it to us in general revelation, in nature, which is all around us. He has shown us his great providence. Indeed, if we reflect on last week's text, it is easy to see how this is the case. God told Ahaz, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. And if you are not firm on faith, you will not be firm at all. Ahaz is being encouraged, don't turn toward humanity, and don't turn toward other nations for your protection. Instead, turn to me. Turn to your God. I will protect you. Still Ahaz, instead of trusting in God, seems to have made up his mind. A sign to be given to the king to show that all that was said was true. But instead of making a request, Ahaz hides behind his pseudo-religiosity. Why? Because in the end, the choice has already been made. He was going to rely on Assyria and no amount of evidence could change his mind on the matter. This is very often the case when it comes to humanity as well. Despite the evidence being in God's favor, we very often still deny the evidence in front of us because we want to remain in our own ways. We find this is the case in Romans when we're told, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For that what can be shown about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things, not that, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Despite the evidence being clearly visible before us, we often choose to ignore it. 
The evidence for God's existence is plain even in nature, and yet instead of rejoicing and turning toward God, who is most glorified, we suppress the reality of God. Instead of turning toward him, we turn toward self for understanding, seeking to be wise in our own sight rather than seeking the wisdom from above. As such, we find a manifestation of our enemy at work, that is, the enemy we combat constantly, ourselves. For though God should reveal himself to us, we still deny his existence and deny his truth in favor, in favor of whatever truth seems most appropriate to us. It should not surprise us then that Ahaz would make such a decision. Despite God warning him to be careful, quiet, and not to fear, instead Ahaz does the exact opposite. He is quick to seek any form of assistance. His fear causes him to turn toward the first object he sees, which is the might of the Assyrians, in order to save and persevere. We are not surprised because we often react in the same exact way. It is even true for those in the church. Many congregations see the threat of, let's say, closing their doors. Like Ahaz, we feel bombarded by the reality of our congregations possibly being shut down, being overrun, so to speak, by our enemies, being silenced. What do many congregations then do? They seek any form of assistance in order to keep that from happening. They look to the world and seek the most specialized individuals for church growth. Their pastors are told, you must stop preaching so harshly. Do not train the mind. Make it easier to understand, more practical, less theological. You can keep the Bible, but don't take it seriously. Make it less about God. Make it more about people. Don't proclaim you have the truth, but that the truth is still needing to be found. Don't preach on death, judgment, or on hell, only on heaven. Don't preach on sin. Preach on love. Be the church of do what you want to and the church of do what you please. The church of do what feels good and believe what you want to believe. Do these things. Because of this, many congregations throw everything out the window. Their beliefs become nothing more than the reflection of the latest fad in the culture. They inject the philosophies of the day into their teachings and spread a thin veneer of God over it, all the while calling it piety. They're willing to bend the knee to Assyria because of lesser problems they face, believing that Assyria will save them from their, from their problems. In Assyria, it still exists in the ways and the wiles of the world, which urges us to become more relevant. But what happens? We become less relevant because once you start to look exactly like the world, you cease to have any relevance in it. Meanwhile, what does God tell us? The same thing he tells to Ahaz. Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. And if you are not firm on faith, you will not be firm at all. All God requires of us is faithfulness in our lives and faithfulness with our congregations. Faithfulness from both the pastors and the leaderships and the laity. Nothing more, nothing less. The minute we begin to look at these obstacles as something greater than they are, then you find it easy to fall down into the pit. Thus, that which we thought would save us from those minor obstacles ends up being our undoing. So what is the response of our congregations? I think the response should be to trust in God. Whereas Ahaz failed to turn in faith to God, we have no reason to doubt God's grace and providence. 
Even if so many congregations should turn away from faithfulness to God, we should remain ever vigilant to trust in God rather than man for our salvation. Because as it is, what is man? Man is nothing more than a breath of air. But God, God is forever. His ways are forever. His wisdom, his truth, his attributes, he will always last. As such, if we should be turning toward anything for our trust, it should be God alone. Anything else we seek to place our trust in becomes nothing more than an empty idol created by the futility of our minds drenched in sin. So be encouraged, but also warned from this passage. Do not be misled to trust in self or humanity for deliverance. Instead, trust in God alone. For he alone is able to give any sign, to change any circumstance, to give a new perspective. He is able to defeat all of our enemies, whether demon, other people, or even the old enemy known as self, which seeks to destroy rather than to save. These things they truly do destroy, but God, God saves. So trust in him and know the peace which comes from obedience and faithfulness to him alone. Now, naturally, this leads to the gospel. Carissa is going to laugh at that because I always say, and naturally, this leads to the gospel. Because it does lead to the gospel. Um, let's be real. The gospel is wonderful. It all starts with our origins. I mean, from the beginning, God is the first cause. He is the creator of all that we see. And it is wonderful. And we are able to rejoice in the fact that our God has created this world of reason and this, God, this, this world which we're able to see around us and experience with our bodies. But we also know something more, and that is that despite all the wonderful things that God has created, he created us, humanity, in his image. And that means that all humans, no matter what age, no matter what race, no matter what it is that we try to put people in categorically wise, no matter what, we are all made in his image and we all have sanctity, dignity, and worth to life. And this is something which is marvelous. This is something which we can rejoice in that this is the case. The problem is, like what we find with Ahaz, is that humanity turns toward self. Humanity is so drenched in sin that that's what we choose constantly. That no matter what, we would rather rejoice in our own doings rather than rejoice in the God who created us. And that we would rather turn away from him in sin and depravity rather than turning toward him and glorify him with all that we are. And because of this, because of our sins against him, we are worthy of being judged by him. Now the question is, what can save us from ourselves? What can save us, not even from ourselves and our sin, but what can save us from the judgment of God Almighty? Because as it is, he deserves this. We deserve this. And we can't do it on our own. There's nothing that you or I can do because we are the guilty parties in this. We have sinned against the King Almighty. What can be done? Well, thanks be to God. Because 2,000 years ago, there was a virgin. And that virgin, she gave birth to the Son of God. The Word made flesh. And now we do sing, Emmanuel, God is with us. Because of what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it is through the life, death, 
and the resurrection of Jesus in time, space, history, and flesh, that we are able to be redeemed from our sins and that we can be turned and our perspectives can be changed and we can no longer look towards the world, but we can look to God Almighty for our salvation because he has brought it, because the sign has come. And there's no more signs that we could even possibly need because in the end, it's through Jesus Christ, the sign of God, the perfect one of God, the servant of God, the son of God, who redeems us. And his righteousness is our righteousness because we believe by faith in him. The same faith that God called Ahaz to, the same faith Isaiah had in this magnificent God, we have in Christ, our Savior. You know, all of this makes me think also of the coronavirus, the gospel, what's happening with Ahaz. And we want to be careful because as it is, our righteousness is not our own. Our pious deeds are nothing without our faith. And I know that there's so many of us who are just so aching to get back to this building to proclaim the truth of God, to hear it here in this space that we have devoted to God as a sanctuary. But I want to caution the same things that Isaiah said to Ahaz. Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint. I know that this is not the ideal. But during this time, we can trust that God has a plan. But we have to be faithful. Faithful to what God has called us to, which is to love our neighbors as ourselves and to love God with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. I know I reversed those. I didn't mean to. I apologize. But the truth is, is that if we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves, then this is what we have to do right now. But what we should also be doing is thanking God that we can still have these communications, that we don't have to just be silenced completely. We live in a time when we can still come together and pour over the scriptures together. And that's something to rejoice over. So I know that this isn't quite what we want it to be. But I encourage you with these same words. Trust in God. He has done so much already. And in time, we'll get back to normal. And we can trust in him with that. But let's be faithful now in what we have been called to do. And recognize that sometimes our piety can get in the way of our faith. But true piety is being faithful. So let's be faithful. And as it is, again, it's all because of Jesus and it's his righteousness, not ours. We just, we get to experience it by faith and we get to follow after him. And it's wonderful. And where is it leading us to? It's leading us to glory. It's leading us to be able to see our God face to face because of Emmanuel, because God is with us already. And soon we won't have any of the distractions of this world, but instead we'll be able to experience God like never before. We've had a tip of the iceberg, but there's going to come a time when we get to experience the wholeness of God and we will rejoice because we have found that which our soul desires, which is communion with God completely and fully. And all these things will be like a shadow that passed over. But in the end, the shadows do not last. The light has come. The Son of God has come. The sign has been delivered. Let us praise him and let us pray. 
Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for the prophet Isaiah, that he was faithful to you, willing to go in front of kings in order to proclaim the truth that you have for them. And Lord, we ask that we would be no different, that we too would be willing to proclaim that faithfulness to you is what you are seeking, that faith in you, that all you desire from us is to remain in you and you in us. And so, Lord, we ask that we would remember this and remember that our power is not in our own abilities, but in you. And that our righteousness is not our own, but yours. Lord, we thank you for what you have accomplished and we thank you for the sign given. Because we know and we can trust in you. Because you have delivered upon every promise that you have made. So, Lord, we ask that you would give us faith during this time. That you would give us strength. And Lord, we ask that we would continue to be ever faithful to you and that you would be joyful in your people during this time. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. God bless everyone. Have a wonderful week in the Lord.